Hello and welcome to this episode of Primarily Context-Based. This is a collaboration between CTO Craft and Skiller Whale, um, and it's inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow, where questions have a single right answer, and questions can actually be closed and archived because they're considered primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer. They are primarily context-based. And in this podcast, we're going to take one of those questions, talk about a range of answers to it, and the context that makes those answers appropriate. I'm the CEO of Skiller Well. We do targeted capability training, a unique form of training that is individually personalized with hands-on sessions with a live expert delivered remotely to your team in one-hour chunks. Prior to that, I was a CTO for a while and I ran a series of events called Tech Leader Dinners for just over three years and was also a CTO coach. In all of those roles, I discovered that the same questions would come up again and again, but with different answers every time because context is critical. Today, we are going to be answering the question of, am I data-driven enough? And I'm very pleased to be joined by my good friend and co-founder, Dave Milliken. Dave, hello. Tell us a bit about yourself. Hey, Hal. Uh, it's nice to be here. Um, I guess I don't need to talk about my current company because Hal has already already done that. Um, but I'm uh, I'm CTO with him at Skiller Whale and was actually working with him for... Uh, it four years before starting Skiller Whale uh, mm. together as well. So we've we've worked together for quite a while, um, and almost played in a jazz band together at uh, <laughs> at university, but managed to not quite meet. Um, so before before this uh, uh, before this role, I worked as a data scientist, leading a leading a small team of of data engineers and and data scientists. Uh, and started my career as a race strategist for the Ferrari F1 team, which was data science, but before data science had become the sexier job title. Um, so throughout my career, I've been uh, dealing with data from quite a few different aspects. I started out as kind of pure, or almost mathematical data, statistics, mechanical things uh, with uh, with Ferrari, then moved into startups and more more business like data around uh, how we should be targeting sales, where which uh, segments of the market we should go after, and so on. And now at Skiller Whale, uh, as CTO, I've got a kind of slightly higher level view as well. Uh, what should we be tracking across the business to make sure we're performing as, as well as we can? You have a really interesting background, Dave, because I think most of the time when we talk about ourselves as being data-driven, we don't really mean using data for driving. But of course, that's exactly where your career at the Ferrari F1 team started. I think being data-driven has become a massive topic maybe in the last five and 10 years because of the rise in the conversation about big data and machine learning and artificial intelligence has meant that the conversations about data and data science have stopped being the preserve of a kind of nerdy niche that I suspect you and I both identify with and has become much more a kind of boardroom conversation. And so that's where this question comes from is the question of, am I data driven enough? How does someone know if they are being data-driven? And uh, I guess also, is it brilliant to be data-driven or is it ever a bad thing? Yeah, so I um, I guess a really interesting place to start is the final thing you said about, is it, uh, is it always brilliant to be data-driven and, and can it be a bad thing? And I'm sure it'll sound very familiar to lots of people um, 
in a meeting, someone comes up with a graph that shows them exactly exactly what we need to do for the next quarter. There's never enough context. Often the graph is being shown to people who wouldn't wouldn't have their heads in the data, wouldn't know what questions to ask about it anyway. But there's a feeling that the data says we have to follow uh, follow this path. So we'll just go ahead and do that. Um, and really, there, there isn't that much mystique to data. Data is facts just in a numerical form, usually, or statistical form, rather than uh, more contextual or, uh, or subjective. Um, so a big, a big problem is seeing numerical data causes people to turn off their brains to other types of information, such as the hesitant tone in, in customers' voices when we talk about a new feature. Uh, the fact that lots of people have been clicking on it doesn't necessarily mean they they like it. It might just mean they think it's a bit weird, want to see what it is. When we actually talk to them about it, they say, no, well, we'd never use that. And, and that has to be taken into account as well. Um, so even going back to right at the start of my career uh, with um, Ferrari, the data we have there is real-time kind of track information, things like how fast cars are going around, like the speeds they're achieving, uh, how fast tires are degrading, things like that. Um, we have models that kind of just churned numbers. And during races, we didn't have to do very much. Uh, but even in this situation where you have this very pure data, we still have to apply some context. Um, on one of the tracks we raced on, one side of the track was dusty. Uh, and it meant that cars starting on that side uh, would get a worse start than cars on the other side. Um, none of the models we had built, none of the data we'd been collected, we'd been collecting accounted for this in, in any way. And so we had to take a step back and work out how should we approach this problem now that we have extra information which isn't captured in our kind of so-called data model uh, of, mm -hmm. of the race. So I think there's a really important point there about the context the data comes from, which I think is also what you were saying about conversations with customers, that if we've if we've got 10 customers who've said they want feature X, um, but actually the kind of the the pipeline from the raw data of the customer's feeling to the, that list of 10 has gone through maybe some people on your sales team who are very incentivized to maybe round up the enthusiasm the customer was showing. Um, you need to take that into account when you're looking at the data, like the data alone isn't enough. And it sounds like that's the same with this, the kind of half dusty starting point on the yeah, race yeah, circuit. Exactly. Like, however, however fine grained you go in, in your data, there'll always be things that have escaped, uh, escaped the numbers you have. I think there was um, uh, an early, uh, early kind of customer survey done by Sony when digital music started coming onto the scene. Uh, showed them that people really cared about the quality of the audio they were listening to. And as a result, Sony thought there wasn't a threat from digital because the quality of the music was was lower. Um, and of course, they'd failed to capture a really important piece of information there, uh, in this case, that convenience is super useful. And even though they knew that the... Uh, the quality of analog music was was going to remain higher. It wasn't enough of a bonus to 
to affect consumer behavior away from digital. Mm. And I, I imagine the same sort of thing has happened again and again. Uh, Blockbuster decided not to acquire Netflix. That will have been based on some data suggesting that Netflix wasn't a threat. Uh, mm. And of course, Netflix turned out to be a huge success. So that there's something missing in there in the data they're using for that decision. So then, if we if we are all going to go away and be data driven, is there any way of knowing that you've got all the data required? Is there any way of knowing if your data have captured everything that matters? Um, I would say that um, you can always be pretty sure that your data won't have captured everything that matters. Um, but there are, like, I think, the real lesson is always apply a little bit of contextual knowledge at least if there are some people who who feel that the data you're looking at doesn't feel right then it's worth digging into that don't don't come back with oh it's in the data so so it will be fine it's worth working out why it doesn't feel right it might be because of, mm. it contradicts what they've felt in in customer meetings it might be because in their 20 years of experience they've never seen an uptick in growth like your model is predicting. Um, I've, I've been in one meeting where the the CEO of a, a company presented a, a model that showed over the next year, sales were going to grow by a factor of 30 on the previous year. Um, and it turned out that in that case, the original data collection had been fine, but someone had put a decimal point in the wrong place. And <sighs> the, the growth was really... But, Wherever this data's come from, even if early on you're pretty confident, if something feels wrong, it's really important to, to work out why that is. Um, in, um, in a data scientist's uh, job, typically, there's a lot of kind of emphasis put on the, the models they're building and what they, what they show and how clever deep mm. learning and, and AI are. Uh, but I think 80% is a a figure that's thrown around, uh, some data that may or may not be trustworthy uh, for the amount of time data scientists spend on cleaning data. And that cleaning stage, even when you're working with data that has, has reached a data scientist, they have to spend 80% of their time working out which bits of that can be trusted and which things are, are not quite right and, and looking into anomalies. Mm. And I think that's something that people are often... Uh, a, a bit unaware of just your your conclusions will only ever be as good as the data you have and so yeah. cleaning that data is is really critical i really like the point you made there that without qualitative data you don't know how to interpret quantitative data the quantitative data is just a bunch of numbers or figures or statistics that so without some qualitative input, you can't give it a meaning. It doesn't have an inherent meaning. And without a meaning, you can't really be driven by it. So you reminded me of a, a meeting I was in where someone from the sales team, this was a company that sold um, a product to consumers. It was a B2C company um, and they sold products, um, kind of one-off sales. And I remember it was early April and we were just reviewing the figures for March and they said, brilliant news. Um, our sales in March are 10% up over February, which is fantastic. And I said, well, there were 28 days in February and there are 31 days in March. And so we should expect a roughly 10% increase 
from February to March. And that was a case where the raw statistics looked brilliant for the company in the stage it was at, a 10% increase would have been huge. But as soon as you start thinking of the context for that, that increase in numbers, it just it explained away the improvement that we'd seen. Yeah, I've heard, heard an amazing uh, similar story about uh, somebody reporting school numbers rocketing up in September. Right. Um, <laughs> obviously, after after the summer holidays, but the graph looked great, so they so they went with it. Um, yeah, I think there's also another another kind of moral in that uh, example in the, in the story you just told, which is that people always have agendas with data as well. If you have data that shows you something you want to see, then there's always that desire to just accept it and, and not question any further. So we've got a 10% increase in sales. Great. That's really good news. Let's pop the champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, show, if you saw a 10% drop in sales, you might look into it. Um, much more likely to say, oh, yeah, February was worse than January because it's got 10% fewer days. Um, and people always want to interpret things from data, and you've got to really guard against that instinct as well. Um, and it's hard. Like, people make this mistake at, at every level of, uh, of data interpretation. And mm. um, it's, I, I think the reason data scientist is, is such an in-demand job is because it isn't just a plug-and-play formula. It's kind of applying context and common sense and, and numeracy and mixing them together. Yes, yeah, certainly common sense on its own. I think often doesn't get people there. The the obvious one, and I think it's what you're talking about, is the difference between correlation and causation, that two things can be changing together, but that doesn't mean that A is causing B or that B is causing A. They might be entirely independent. And that's where that kind of, not just common sense, but kind of critical thinking and qualitative input is really necessary. Yeah, that's that's definitely right. What do you think about the use of modeling? Because I think often when people say they're data-driven, it means that they've got, there's a model that they are using to inform their thinking, maybe a numerical model. Surely that's fine, isn't it? If we've got some data that we trust, we've applied our qualitative thinking and we've put it into a model and that's told us something about the future. Does that feel like being data-driven? Would you be confident in that as an approach? I'm I'm sure you're expecting this answer, but with models as with data it's very important that you understand what the model is doing and and how it works and under what conditions the model might fail and um, so there's a lot of um, a lot of hype at the moment around or there has been for the last few years around deep learning and there uh the the things that the models are producing are amazing uh, but internally how exactly how the model's working is a bit of a black box. So when people are kind of expert in how how deep learning networks work, they'll be able to predict the type of input that uh, that might cause problems. So, for example, if you if you have a, a gallery of uh, photographs and all of them are of young white men then your model is likely to perform badly on on black women or uh, 
are, are diff- people that are different to the demographic you've used when when training your model in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, the simpler the modeler the, the model is, the easier it will be to spot where it might fall down. Uh, so, and one of one of the most simple models you could have is to say, I have collected the sales data for the last few months. I'm going to plot a straight line through that and assume that because I have this data from the past few months, our trajectory will continue because there's nothing to suggest that that it wouldn't. Um, and there, I think most people would would take a look at that and and be a little bit suspicious because they know what's happening. They know that this this line has just been drawn on effectively. And the same skepticism has to be applied for for any other model as well. It's just harder to apply it because you, as the models get more and more complicated, you don't know exactly what's happening happening inside. Uh, what you can be sure of is that the model won't know anything other than the data you've you've put into it. Um, and so everything everything not in the data you've input into a model will be missed out, and, and it's worth always thinking back to that, what what isn't in there that might cause a result to look better or, or worse than, than reality. Right. So there's no, so that, that critical faculty you have when you see someone walk over to uh, a graph and draw a line on and say, well, that will now continue forever, which we would all be suspicious of. You can't switch that off just because the model gets more complex. I think is what you're saying. It's that the principle still holds. You need to have critical thinking. You need to think about where the data comes from, how it's being treated and apply that same skepticism to whatever a model is, is telling you. Does that, is that right? Yes, definitely. That's right. A lot of this comes down to critical thinking and common, common sense and making sure that you don't let data or a model suppress those. Um, I feel like a lot of this, a lot of the time so far, I've been kind of slamming data, and uh, people might might think that I would uh, advocate not being data driven at all. Uh, but obviously, there is huge value in using in using data. It gives you a lot more visibility on on what's going on, on potential things that that might be coming up. Um, it's just very important to to bear in mind the context of of what the data means and and what's not included. Mm. I think I know what you mean. And there's one particular phrase I have in mind that I feel like I hear in advertising and in slogans, which to me makes no sense. And I wonder if you can make sense of it. It's predictive analytics. And I remember listening to a podcast where they had an advertiser uh, a company that offered predictive analytics. And I just remember every time it came on thinking, but what does that mean? Because to me, those things are fundamentally at odds. Analytics is what you do with data to, to answer specific questions that you have. And then predictivity is about looking forward and modeling and is, and is maybe uses information from the data, but you can't be predictive with analytics alone in my opinion and i just i don't understand how this makes sense as a concept honestly so i I think all of these things there's a bit of um kind of finding nice terminology for for what you're doing so i think by predictive analytics what people usually mean is uh using data from the past to try and predict what will happen in the future it's um 
which I think is is valid. For example, if you look at uh, the sales a shop makes throughout a year, um, and you have you have data going back ten years, you see every December there's a big spike round about Christmas. There are peaks on Saturdays and on Friday evenings, perhaps. This sort of this sort of information from the past can be very useful in predicting kind of the stock levels you'll need for for the upcoming year at, at different points. Um, you can end up combining this data. So if January, February, March, April end up being a lot stronger than in the previous year, you you might see that every time that's happened in the past, then the kind of strong year has remained for for sales going going on from that point. Mm-hmm. But you'd still be able to use the kind of weekly cycle and the monthly cycle on top of that overall difference. So there, there are definitely insights you can draw from past data that that tell you more about what will will happen. Um, I, I think that's that's usually what people would mean by predictive analytics. Yes, I, I guess I what I'm saying is that I think there's an important step in the middle, which is taking your analytics and applying that thinking before you get predictive with it. I think that they're two separate things. And um, I think because otherwise you end up you know, you end up watching a, a groundhog coming out of his uh, house in order to determine how long summer is going to be. You know, it's um, <laughs> there's, there's a risk. There's definitely a risk. Yeah, um, I, I think things that are inherently relatively predictable, like uh, like the sales example, or perhaps like uh, electricity usage. So, for power grids, it's important to know how much how much usage is likely to be needed across the network. And that will be cyclical. There'll be less use at night. There'll be more use during the day, uh, particularly kind of in the ad break at, of EastEnders. Or there are certain patterns that you you will be able to pick up on if they're in your data. And any extra context you, you have, for example, uh, this, uh, this week EastEnders isn't showing, uh, you might be able to put that into your model and suggest that there are going to be far fewer cups of tea being made round about uh, 7 p.m. in the in the ad break. I don't, don't know if that's when EastEnders is on. I'm guessing. I, I was going to say I feel like we've watched this. We've watched the same instructional video at school because we had exactly the same video of um, the people in a power plant talking about predicting the surge in energy usage during a, a break in in a soap opera EastEnders. And then being ready for that, and you know, engaging new generators for the massive draw of people suddenly needing to make a quick cup of tea. Um, you know, it's amazing between how parts much of the power, program. Amazing how much power a kettle uses. Um, I used to manage to fuse my entire flat by making a cup of tea while the washing machine was running. Anyway, wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be about the wiring in your flat. Actually, it was, it was in in Italy. They, okay. people, standardly there, they don't have electric kettles. I had to import one from the UK. But oh, yeah, wow. that's definitely not relevant. To, yeah. That sort of makes <laughs> sense to me because at the same wattage and half the voltage, you're going to be doubling the amperage. So uh, it sort of makes sense to me that it would have a big impact on the electrics in your flat. But I think we might be, I'm worried this could turn out to be a tangent to the podcast. Um <laughs> 
How do you think about quantity of data? Because a few years ago, a lot of people were talking about the idea of big data. Um, is more better? And is there an amount of data that becomes enough? Um, I, more, more is usually better, as long as the quality of the data doesn't drop. Um, and so I, I've got an example uh, relevant to this, of a friend who's working with huge amounts of text data and trying to build a, a text model to, to generate writing. And they have a huge amount of data, but all of the books they've imported include things like uh, prologues written by sometimes different people to the, to the author. And they had a bit of debate about whether they should cut these out or include them. So it's kind of data cleaning versus data quantity. Uh, and there wasn't agreement within the team but when they when they did strip these out and tried running tried building their model with a smaller quantity of better data, the results ended up being something like twenty percent better. And this is after a long period of incremental kind of zero point two percent improvements in the model. So mm. um, adding a little bit of I, and these prologues probably con constituted about. Uh, kind of between two and five percent of the total text volume. So there, having an extra kind of five percent of data that is lower quality can have a really dis disproportionately big effect on on the outcomes. So when you're trying to get more data, make sure that the data isn't going to either be biased in in some direction or um, or lower quality. Mm. Uh, this bias point, I realize we've not talked about data bias, but it's a really, a really big thing to, to take into account as well. Uh, one example that springs to mind is political surveying, where um, poll, polling companies would phone up landlines to talk to people and ask about their voting intentions. Uh, and in recent years, the results have started to seem very skewed um, and the, the, the polling predictions end up relatively close to um, the the actual voting behaviours of older voters. But there are huge numbers of young people who don't have landlines. Mm. So they've been choosing to get more data by, by calling up landlines in addition to sending out mail surveys and things uh, and ended up with skewed results. Uh, on the flip side, some polling companies are sending out emails, uh, which has the opposite uh, problem of uh, being skewed far too much towards young people who are who are internet savvy. Um, and in countries where internet connectivity is is sparse, towards people who have an internet connection and people who who don't. So, uh, in any of these cases, getting more data will give you less uncertainty in your results, but your results are skewed towards the sample that, that you're collecting. Hmm. And it's applying that critical thinking again, isn't it? Again, thinking... it, comes, it comes back to understanding the data and the, and the process by which you've, you've gone through, the process you've gone through to get to an answer. Yep. So the, 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 the difference between kind of big data and, and small data for decision-making uh, really depends on what sort of thing you're trying to do. If, if you're trying to build a model that will simulate human speech or that can recognize dogs in images, 
then you need a huge amount of data for that because there's it's much more complicated than than it feels to humans to mm. to do those sorts of things if the data you're looking for is uh which version of our app is more popular then it's much more important to make sure that you're getting data from a representative sample of of users like do you care about whether your app whether your new design is landing with your current customers or with prospective customers are there any differences between those two groups uh, but if, even if you have a relatively small number of people to test it on say you you have a thousand people viewing one page and a thousand viewing another if the behavior is significantly different across those groups you can still draw quite strong conclusions um, and there are various statistical tests you can do to to work out how how likely there is to be a kind of real difference uh, but with the small data you sometimes have the risk of a sample being being more biased and, and less representative i i wouldn't want to draw any conclusions from kind of 10 people viewing one version and 10 people viewing another just because the the chance that they don't represent your your customers is is very high if you've got a thousand and a hundred people out of those thousand are engaging at those sorts of numbers you you can be pretty confident that uh, that there's at least some representation of of a larger group going on mm. so really what you're saying i think is that the amount of data determines what kind of problems you can solve with it if you're if you're solving an analysis problem then smaller volumes of data can be enough as long as the data is of good enough quality and is unbiased whereas if you're looking at more of a perception problem you just need a lot more data because that's you're kind of mirroring a more human process yeah, and a much more complex mm. process. Got it. Do you have any other final thoughts, Dave, or anything that you think we've left out of this conversation about how people can use data to be data-driven? Uh, there's one more one more point which I think is worth making. Uh, links in a little bit with this idea of uh, running A-B tests. Um, so when you want to use when, when you want to be purely data-driven, running an A-B test lets you see how users have responded to, to two different versions of your app, say. That's usually very effective, and you can just rely on the data to say, this version two resulted in more marketing revenue. So we'll push that a little bit harder. But what data won't help you with is a kind of bigger picture business, uh, business goals idea, like, do we want to be working on getting more marketing revenue or do we want to be working on getting a bigger market share or should we build this separate product that uh, that gives us another route into market uh, typically those kind of bigger questions the business decisions and, and, and wider goals are much harder to answer with data whereas small small kind of incremental changes uh, data data let you kind of optimize locally within that space uh, much more effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I was thinking about finding some good examples of um, not applying common sense with data. And there are websites that will help you, um, will generate spurious correlations for you. Yeah, they're, they're really good. I just found one that um, in America, the people who drowned after falling out of a fishing boat correlates with the marriage rate in Kentucky. 
And that seems to yeah. me like the perfect note to, to leave this on. Um, so Dave, thank you very much for all of your thoughts about how to be data-driven and how to ensure that you don't leave your common sense and your critical faculties um, behind in the search for more and more data to rely on, but instead use them to, to change how you think about data. Join us next time on Primarily Context-Based when I'll be talking with Emmanuele Blanco and discussing the question, should a CTO code? <laughs>